From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Well, welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Groundsman Conversations. Joining me this week, we are a man down. We only have one fellow groundsman here, Roger Mitchell. Hi, Roger. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Giles, I believe, is in the old country, in the old well, books. Yeah, so that's a lot of grass for him to mow, I've got to say, up there. He's going to be hard pushed. I did... I did I, he he called me and told me that he had um, he had a case of Ross River fever, so he couldn't come to work. And uh, Ross River fever, apparently, I'm reliably informed, is the only known virus for which there are no symptoms. So um, <laughs> if if you're ever looking for a day off work, Ross River fever, that's what you want to uh, catch. Ross River fever, mark it down. By the end of the day at the hospitality tent, he will have loads of symptoms. I yeah, can no, guarantee sure. you, no, that is I can sure. see this this rather tall, well-dressed gentleman struggling along the beach, staggering, staggering trying to find his hotel. Yeah, the weather's good enough that uh, every inch of that beach could be his hotel, Roger. He'll be just fine. I'm not worried about Mr Morgan <laughs> in the slightest, I have to say. Good for him. Now, we have a guest joining us shortly, of course. It's a groundsman conversation after all. But um, before we do, Rog, let, let's have a little quick chat about the Open so far. Seeing as it's on and you can't avoid it and it's magnificent, what's your takeaway been so far? Uh, uh, so we're on Friday afternoon. Uh, so I saw most of Rory yesterday, as I guess one does, you know, as a background. Thought he looked really good, really, really good. I've seen today, this morning, a lot of uh, a lot of big names have put numbers on the board. Thing is, you know, apart from all this personalities live and everything like that. Can we talk a little bit about what the winning score is going to be in this fucking thing? I'm thinking it's minus 20 grand, and that is not good for Miserable golf. Miserable old bastard. I'm but, telling yeah, so, you, hang, you. Hang on, hang on. Hang on. Tiger Woods shot minus 18 round here, whatever, 10 years ago, more than that, 15 years ago, and it was a coronation. Why is it bad for golf? I mean, look, I, well, I get I, your point. I get your point, right, because... It's amazing watching these guys demolish the course and, and make par fives, you know, driver and a gap wedge like Rory did yesterday. Tiger hitting 420-yard drives downwind. I totally get it. But still, there were a bunch of people yesterday who were one over, two over, three over, you know, big names who, who couldn't no, no, I, break I get that, Grant. I, I get that. I, I'd link it a little bit to what you said about Monaco, which, by the way, most people are not going with that idea of you scrapping the Monaco Grand Prix which is unusual. It's a switch in personalities there for you and I. But you saying that Monaco is not 
for various reasons fit for purpose anymore. I'm saying the same thing. The most traditional course in a sport, whether it's Monaco, St Andrews isn't a course designed for modern equipment and modern players. It's pitch and putt. I totally agree. It's pitch and putt. I totally agree. I totally agree. And yet, there were some of the best pros in the world who couldn't break par around the yesterday, Rog. So what I'm Everybody saying is Monaco day. Monaco has always been that to me. It's always been about the parties and the personalities and the stars. It's nothing to do with the race. St Andrews is is different. And, and I, I agree with your point. I absolutely agree with your point. But when people were talking before the tournament, oh, someone's going to shoot 59 around here, and maybe they will. Maybe they will. We'll see. I, I suspect they won't, but it could happen. But I, I, look, I, on the one hand, I do take your point, right, that the course is almost obsolete at this point, hmm. but it doesn't take much wind. And 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 the wind has always been the defence of St Andrews 100%, and most of courses, 100%. right? 100%. So it's, not, it's never been the length that's the thing that protects them. It's the wind. As and the, if you get, the actress said to the bishop, yeah. Yeah, there you go. And it's the, <laughs> and it, it's, it's the conditions. So, you know, you can't say these courses are obsolete because in completely pure No, I agree with weather, you. Listen, it's great, it's great stuff. It's, it's good stuff. I'm enjoying it. Um, and, and it'll be good to see what happens uh, in the next uh, two and a half days. I hope it's got a, a solid leaderboard because, you know, when uh, Rory carded yesterday, he finished, what, about mid-afternoon? It was him and a lot of nobodies in the leaderboard, and that's not good, you know. So I see today that the big names have made, and you know me, Grant. If it's not an exciting leaderboard, I'm out. You know, it's like it's the lovely weather here. It's not keeping me in. I'll watch the highlights on YouTube. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Roger, listen. I tell you, why don't you why don't you let the listeners know who is joining us shortly? Yeah, this is a, this is a very interesting one, and we probably will come back to the kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, Corey Leff. Uh, probably known to most people as John Wall Street, uh, who is one of the sports media journalists for the the Sportico Network and obviously goes under his own name and his own brand, is somebody that I've followed for a long time. I think he's one of the most astute commentators on the business of sport and is a real sports guy. Um, And I think, Grant, it's important that, you know, I've stumbled upon this term, that I think a lot of people find opposite these days, London-centric. I want to bring a different voice in to tell us what's happening in the States and give us an idea about whether things are going to go exactly the way you and I discuss from different angles. Uh, It's all just entertainment content, isn't it? Or is tradition going to win out? Because as everything in life tells us, America is always the, the leader and the, and the trendsetter. With that being said, why don't we uh, stop uh, bloviating, Rog, and we'll get uh, Corey in. Perfect. Corey Leff, welcome to Are You Not Entertained? I'm so delighted that you uh, finally got on the show. I've been an admirer for a long time. Thanks for having me, guys. I've been admiring you guys and, and your work from uh, overseas, so appreciate you guys inviting me. And uh, let me introduce you to my fellow groundsman, Grant Williams, who, as you know, is a fan and comes from the finance industry. It's great to meet you, Corey. Likewise. Good, Corey. Listen, um, the way we do things here is before we get into the juice of everything, we like to understand what's behind the person that we're interviewing because we believe that that tells everybody the context of all the comments you're going to make going forward. So tell us a little bit. um, You know, the the listeners can uh, see you, but I would say you're probably a millennial. Yep, I'm going to be 40 this year, which is a, t- a tough thing for me to say. 
Yeah. So um, <laughs> it only gets that, worse, that, Corey. Trust me. Yeah, it does. It does. So that that frames you in in the ears of the listeners. Tell us a little bit about you know where you where you come from in the states and your specifically your relationship with sport. Yeah. So I grew up in New Jersey, uh, just thirty minutes outside of New York City. I grew up as a big New York sports fan. My dad was a a very big sport. It still is a big sports fan. I grew up in a time uh, which I know it's kind of new to you guys, or it's it's not. I shouldn't say new, but kind of a foreign concept to you guys. But sports talk radio in New York had had really taken off in like the late '80s and early '90s. And you know, I remember going into my my dad's car as a kid, and he'd always have Mike and the Mad Dog on. And Mike and the Mad Dog, for for those of you guys who are not familiar with the show, was kind of the preeminent. Uh, local sports talk show. Uh, they would these two guys would have a show in New York City that would air for like five hours every single day, and it would get into real the real minutia of of New York sports. Um, and that I guess you know kind of really perhaps uh, accelerated my interest in sports as a kid. I actually wanted to be a sports talk radio. I wanted to be Mike Francesa, um, who was the ah. Mike in the conversation. Uh, as a kid. And actually, I, when I went to college, that was still kind of my mindset. Um, I went to the University of Arizona and um, I, I actually really aggressively pursued that career and was lucky enough to get discovered by a guy named John Rooney. Uh, John Rooney is a pretty prominent broadcaster. He, at the time, was the voice of the Chicago White Sox. He called a couple World Series. He's a He's a big name in the industry. The White Sox were in Tucson for spring training. Tucson is where the university is located and heard me on the air and cold called the local Fox Sports affiliate uh, and basically said, I found you guys the next radio host. So I had my dream job at 20 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I, qu I quickly realized, though, that talking about where a 17 year old might matriculate to college was not my 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 passion in life. As much as I love the Wildcats football and basketball program. I clearly remember there was a there was a, a high a, a very talented football player who ended up playing in the NFL for a while, a guy named Jermichael Finley, and uh, we we spent all this time talking to him about his his commitment to Arizona, and ultimately he decommitted and, and went to Texas. And I remember thinking to myself, "This is nuts!" Like I'm, I'm spending my days talking to 16, 17, 18 year old kids about where they want to go to college. This is there's got to be something more in life than this. And so I left sports talk radio. Um, by the time I was like 22 or 23 and I ended up, I was kind of lost. I didn't know really what I wanted to do with myself. I ended up backing into the startup world for a while. I worked for a couple of pretty nondescript startups. I ended up moving back to New York and found myself in the equity research world. And that's really where I, I kind of formulated this idea for John Wall Street, John Wall Street. I, I had seen that I, I worked for a TMT shop and basically the, there was a bunch of sports-related companies in our universe, companies like Liberty Media and sure. obviously all of the broadcasters. But I had seen, you know, this was like 2015, 2016, and I had started to see all this money coming into sports, but Wall Street was still kind of treating it like the hobby for rich guys, not a viable like investment class. Um, and so I thought there was an opportunity to do more like analyst type stuff. Um, I, I, I lean more towards short form, um, but at, at the time, um, and then I started to kind of bring together all of my 
my expertise from sports, from business, from finance, and, and tie it all together. And, and that ultimately became John Wall Street. It's fascinating. Um, I, before we come on to John Wall Street, Corey, I, I just want to go back to your childhood as a New York sports fan because um, you know, I spent the best part of a decade in New York and uh, I've always been a huge sports fan and, and you know, I, I followed American sports. I lived in Japan in the 80s and the only sport I could watch was was American sports. So I, I have an unhealthily strong knowledge of kind of college basketball from the 80s and stuff, which people are always amazed by how this kid from England knows all this stuff. But, you know, the day I arrived in New York, a great buddy of mine who I was working with, I, I said to him on day one, I said, right, who are your teams? Because I'm taking the other side of every team you've got just because I need someone to have a beef with. And, of course, he was Giants, he was Yankees, he was Knicks. So I got stuck with the Mets, the Jets, and the Nets for a decade. Which, so that, you're, you're speaking to my, to, so people always ask me, like, who do you root for? And I always say, I root for the losers in New York. I'm a Jets, a Mets, a Nets. And yeah. and the one winner I have is because I'm from New Jersey is the Devils. The Devils, the Devils won, okay. You know, three championships between, you know, the time I was 10 and 17, whatever it was. But yes, uh, so I, I root for the, the losers in New York. Good man. I, it's funny because you know, growing up in the UK, Soccer, football is the big sport here, and if you're in, if you grew up in London like I did, there's there's no shortage of teams to choose from. Most people, it's all about the local teams. But you know, apart from really Spurs and uh, Arsenal and Chelsea and Fulham, they're not really that close to each other. If you you have a broad enough geographic spread, but you know, New York, just describe the New York sports scene for people that don't really have any sense, because there are so many teams bunched into such a small area. It's a truly fantastic sports city to me. It's a great sports market. I mean, you have 10 sports teams, I think. There might be 11 now. Um, but you have two NFL teams. You have, which are, you know, New York is a great NFL town. People say New York is a baseball town. Uh, the Mets and the Yankees both have tremendous followings. The Knicks have a rabid following, despite the fact that they haven't won Amazingly. in 50-something yeah. <laughs> years. And they're arguably one of the worst-run teams in sports. Um, and, and on the hockey side, you have three clubs. Um, the hockey side is a little bit different. It's more geographic in nature, yeah. meaning the people in New Jersey, New Jersey, more of them will root for the devils. The people on Long Island will root for the Islanders. The city is largely Rangers fans, but the other three sports for, at least for me, uh, where I grew up in New Jersey, it was 50, 50, and it was predominantly split based on who your parents wrote, you know, we're, we're rooting for. So my dad grew up on Long Island um, and the Jets played on Long Island before they moved to New Jersey. Uh, the Mets obviously were in Queens. So for, for uh, you know, for me, it was largely about, and those two teams went, they, because those two teams played at Shea Stadium together, those two teams kind of get grouped together. Um, yeah. So for me, um, those were the two teams I adopted for my dad. And then from living in New Jersey, I, I became a Nets fan. Um, of course, New Jersey has since re relocated to Brooklyn. Uh, and I root for the, the Devils as well. So um, for me, it was a little bit about, you know, where I grew up and then who my dad rooted for. And and what, what sports did you play as a kid? Because, you know, we all had, had our sport, but... Yeah, so I played... You know, as a little kid, I played everything. Um, you know, I played soccer, I played baseball. Um, I, I think, you know, basketball, kind of like all the, you know, kind of like every kid in America does. Um, as I got a little bit older in high school, I played lacrosse. We didn't have feeder program mm -hmm. lacrosse uh, when I was when I was a kid. My little brothers and sisters were able to play lacrosse as, as you know, kind of little kids. Um, when it, my high school, 
my town didn't get lacrosse until I was in high school, my, my freshman year. So we all kind of learned to play together. Um, and, and I played lacrosse up through high school, but, um, and, and lacrosse is, is a growing sport in New York. I'm not sure how prominent it is in Europe, but, um, pockets of the country, particularly the Northeast, uh, it's, it's a, it's a very popular sport. Well, it is an interesting example. Let's use that to go into it. You know, the Raban brothers in lacrosse, are one of the the kind of like uh, first challenger brands to take what I like to call an Olympic sport, a rather marginal sport, and take it into a more entertainment-focused product, short, sharp, uh, social media-based. That takes us in a little bit to your view about all of this stuff from the context that you said that you've probably been one of the first guys that's been looking at finance and sport for the best part of a decade now. What do you think they are trying to do there? So they have a really interesting model. Um, they take, it's a tour-based model, which I really like because one of the issues that startup leagues run into uh, in the U.S. is particularly the football leagues when I talk about this, but like they've rented the big NFL stadiums, which have obviously huge costs associated with doing that. Um, and then they drop you know, 3000 people and the stadium looks terrible and and they're renting, you know, multiple stadiums each weekend. PLL is taking it kind of like from a different approach where they do, they, it's a tour based model. So yep. um, they play 10 weeks or whatever. Uh, and they're in a, a different lacrosse kind of hot spot each weekend. They do a really good job of making it more than just a game they have really tried to make it into more of like a festival atmosphere. And, and that kind of gets to, one of my kind of overarching thesis is that it's no longer enough to just provide the game, right? Like uh, you need, to, it needs to be a destination, needs to be an experience. And if, especially if you're going to draw behind beyond the hardcore fan. So if you've ever been to like the lacrosse final four, it's a big weekend event. You have, uh, you know, all these, you know, kind of sponsors and events. And uh, there's kind of like a party in the parking lot tailgate uh, and all this stuff that kind of goes around um, making that, uh, you know, a marquee event on Memorial Day weekend, which obviously is a tough weekend to, to draw. Um, and so I, I, I really like what, what PLL has done. Um, I also really like what they've done from a broadcast standpoint. Um, you know, they've, they, they've managed to kind of maximize the revenue side of it by by moving a large portion of their games to streaming. Um, but they still, they, their most recent deal was with ESPN. And so they still get a ton of, you know, linear coverage um, and kind of, and still reach the masses. Recently, I actually went to the game. The, the, it, was, they, it was the first, it was the, I think it was the first lacrosse game to air on ABC in like 50 years or something since, since the seventies or something. Um, so that, you know, getting maximum exposure while still kind of maximizing revenue. Um, I, I, they, they, I think the PLL has done a really nice job of packaging um, what is a still a very niche sport in the U S into uh, into an interesting property. Corey, let me take something you said there and just at the beginning, go back to it. And that's this uh, lacrosse final four and the idea of, of everything needing to be an event. And, th and this is something that Roger and I go backwards and forwards all the time. And it's, it's probably the biggest kind of central argument that we have throughout the course of all these conversations, whether it's with guests or, or amongst ourselves. And that's this idea that everything now has to be an event and has to be made into something to attract a non-fan. Now, as, as I said earlier, my relationship with American sport really began in the 80s. 
And then in the late 80s, when I was hugely into college basketball, the, the one sporting event that I've yet to attend that I will make sure at some point I attend is the, is the NCAA Final Four basketball tournament. And that to me, back in the 80s, when it was just basketball games, you know, it was four basketball games and it culminated on the Monday night with the final. And there wasn't any hullabaloo around it except what was going on inside the arena. And I was hooked. It was just the games were great. The, the athleticism was extraordinary. It didn't need to be anything bigger than that. Now, it's grown obviously since then. But again, as a, as a huge fan of the sport, as a huge fan of the event itself, and as, a, as someone that's, that's distant from it, I don't see any of the entertainment stuff around it. You know, occasionally I might tune in and see some of the stuff in the build-up to the game or whatever, but, but it, it doesn't affect me in any way, shape or form. But I'm still as excited about the Final Four every year as I was back in the 80s when there was no hullabaloo. It was just, you know, there was a, an advert on ESPN International um, telling you that it, this is what was happening at some ungodly time in Tokyo in the morning. And I got up to watch every game. So this idea that nowadays sport has to be an event, I struggle to understand that. And, and both of you are better placed than me to really understand from a business point of view. But I'm curious as to your thoughts on that, and if you could expand on them. So... I think there's a, a just just I think what, at least what I'm talking about is in terms of drawing people to a stadium. Um, I agree with you. Like having concerts, you know, outside the venue and all that stuff is not going to really drive interest for for people abroad or or outside the local market. Um, but for me, the and. and and maybe the final four, I think that's where it started, right? It started with the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl, yep. you know, they brought in the halftime show and uh, and the Super Bowl kind of was the first marquee event. And so I'm talking largely about drawing people to a stadium when I talk about making it more of an experience. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm working on a story right now about Major League Baseball. Um, Major League Baseball has 162 games you have 81 home games the uh, most of those games are not particularly relevant um to the average fan i mean i've been to hundreds of baseball games in the amount that i can remember on you know i thought i could count on one hand um so i think it's largely when we talk about creating an experience at least for me i'm talking about drawing people to a stadium um, you know, how you get people to watch on television, I think, is a separate conversation. Now, I've been to the Final Four twice. Um, I can tell you, and I, and I don't know this for a fact, but Saturday is an amazing event. Saturday, there is a ton of juice in the building. You have fans from four schools. Um, maybe you don't need anything else to draw people to the stadium on Saturday. I've also been to two championship games, and I can tell you that the atmosphere on Monday night is very different than the atmosphere on Saturday. There is far less interest in the game. You can often go to the city where the Final Four is and buy a ticket after the game on Saturday uh, for for the, the finals on Monday night for underface value because the fans of the losing teams yeah. leave, um, and, and so – there's you know a flood of tickets that hits the market. So I don't know how much the thinking was that, hey, we need to find ways to keep people in the market. We need to draw other people to have interest in these games if we're going to draw people on Monday night. But again, I'm not sure that the game alone on Monday night, as great of an event as the Final Four is, is selling out a 70,000-seat stadium without 
having other reasons for either the local market to be interested or or the fans of the losing teams to stay in town. Corey, see, I think this, I think this is the, the the core of it. You know, you talk about baseball there, and you know, I think most of us and most of the listeners will have seen the stats that talk about the average age of the fan. Uh, we're into the mid fifties. If you speak to a kid and you'd say eighty-one home games, and they will just look at you as if you've got three heads. My theory is that sport doesn't get that, doesn't see how the younger generations sees what we think they should see. We still love, you know, when Harry met Sally, the baseball game scene and it's social bonding. It's where you hang out with your dad, with your friend and you shoot the breeze and every so often you hear somebody hitting a a home run. Same with test cricket, exactly the same dynamic. One could argue exactly the same dynamic for four-round golf. From your point of view, and as I say again, repeating, you started looking at this before everybody else and you came at it from sport as content and business point of view, John Wall Street. How much does sport need to realise that there's a demographic cliff? How much does it really need to wake up and smell the coffee? That's a tough question to answer because I think I think it's just in the approach, right? I'm not convinced that the younger generation aren't sports fans. If you start with the premise that you either fell into a sport because your parents were parent were fans of it or because you played it as a kid, then there should be no drop off in the number of fans in today's generation. I mean, more kids are playing sports and parents are spending more money on youth sports than ever before. And for today's generation, uh, you know, the next generation, the next generation of kids is, is, an, is, is it will, remains to be seen, but at least for this generation, the millennials, you know, people, my, you know, people, my age are still avid sports fans. And so their kids should still be avid sports fans. So I'm not sure that the the net that, that the current generation of kids um is any different or less of a sports fan than we were um where i think you get into debate is how they consume sports right um i don't believe most kids today uh are watching linear television um i think that's the, you know part of it, and those that even are watching linear television, I don't think are really sitting down and watching a nine inning baseball game or a three hour football game or anything else. Um, I think that largely has to do with the the media dynamic and the availability of options. That's you know you reference Grant in the in the eighties, there were like thirty television stations, maybe. Um, you know now there's. 300 television stations and there's just all different ways that you can fill your time and spend your money. Um, And so that kind of ties it back to why it needs to be more of an experience than just a game. Because if you can, if I can, if I have all these other options, I need the event to stand out for more than, than just what it is. Because like we said, 162 baseball games or 81 basketball games or whatever the number is, uh, most of those games are just not on their own going to stand out enough to warrant the consumer's time and money. So I, I think it's figuring out about how, how to 
it may be a, a, you know a situation of simply readjusting how we gauge success in terms of fandom. Um, it may be how we deliver content. Uh, it may be how we engage fans. But I think, generally speaking, it's I'm less concerned with the next generation of people uh, or, or children being sports fans. Like I think there still is that connection and that tie. I think it's just a matter of how do we how do we deliver it in a means that is attractive to them. John, this is again, this is this is so great. It, it, it goes straight to the beating heart of a lot of the debates we have on this series of podcasts. And so, let me ask you this: How sacred is the game itself? Because I think your point is absolutely right about how we have to engage people. And it seems to me there are two ways you can do that. You can figure out a way to market it to people in an effective way, or you can start making changes to the game itself to appeal to the current audience's peccadilloes. And, and that's where Roger and I kind of differ immensely in terms of what the right thing to do is. You know, Roger's very much, you, you tweak the game, you give them what they want, and um, you know we've certainly seen examples of that with all this celebrity boxing nonsense that Roger's so enamoured with and it drives me out of my mind. And then you look at, you know, as we're talking now, the Open Championships on, which has been unchanged for 150 years. And so I wonder, is the game sacred? Because to me it should be. It's the game that's sacred and the fans come for the love of the game. Or are there no sacred cows anymore and games should be tweaked? Should, should the baseball season be cut to 100 games? Because you're right, 162 games seems absurd. And the NBA, likewise, 82 games before the season really starts. So so what are the sacred cows, if any, and, and how would you maybe uh, tweak things? You know, it's tough because as a fan, uh, yeah, I want sacred cows, right? I know you guys reached out to me initially because you wanted to talk college football. and We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just, you know, my point was that, you know, I'm devastated that the Pac-12, uh, or, or, you know, could could potentially go away. Um, you know, I love that com- the conference of champions as they like to call it. Um, I, I was heartbroken when the big East broke up, you know, Grant, I grew up in New Jersey, um, you know, seeing Syracuse and, and some of the others leave was, was very disappointing. Um, with that said, I, I think, you know, you have to adapt or die. Um, and, and so I tend to lean t- more towards Roger um, and that doesn't necessarily, you know, I don't necessarily know about changing the rules as much. Like, I don't love the idea of a runner on second base and in extra innings of a baseball game. Um, but the idea of shortening these games, shortening the season, uh, you know, ways to to make it more attractive. I, I think I'm certainly on board with that. Um, you know, and, and I won't profess to be a, an expert in cricket. Um, but the, I, that seems to be like the perfect test case, right? Like cricket games used to go on for days at a time. Um, Five. I don't think, I don't think there's still anybody, do. They still do. They still do. You know, I don't <laughs> think there's anybody who could argue that that's an attractive way to deliver content to, to the, tomorrow's sports fan. Um, and, and, <laughs> And, and and on the flip side of that, right? Like the short games, the uh, the, the abbreviated version is very popular. So, um, I, I do think that I do think that you need to find ways to adapt. And 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 you mentioned um, you know the celebrity boxing. I happen to be a a big proponent of. Um, ultimately, it's about entertainment. 
Um, Damn it, so Roger, stick the deck again. I, I, you know, I love the. <laughs> he was I on your side it. up until now. He was in your side up until now, mate. <laughs> I, I, I loved, um, you know, I love the idea of the celebrity boxing. I love the idea no, of man. tying it together with music. Um, I, I think that's, you know, so I've been, uh, you know, I know Big Three has is kind of like on the ropes right now, um, but I love the idea of Big Three. Big Three is. It, 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 the problem with a lot of startup leagues is that you don't know who any of the players are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can watch an XFL game. You literally, they might be the fourth quarterback in preseason, right? That might be the only player on the team, you know, why would you root for that team? Especially I'm in New York. There's 10 or 11 sports teams. I don't need a 12th sports team where I don't know any of the players. Um, but if you give me one weekend a year of big three of guys like Joe Johnson and Amari Stoudemire, guys that I know, and you're going to not only give me some basketball uh, with, with some household names, but you're also going to mix it in with, uh, you know, a couple of music performances, local rappers and such. Like, that's a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon in the summer. And so um, I, I like the idea. I know, I know, again, Triller has been mm. uh, kind of a mess. But the concept of mixing sport and music and making it an event, and you know, I I, I remember watching, I want to say it was, I want to say it was the first chiller event with Mike Tyson, uh, or maybe it wasn't the first chiller event, but the, the event with the first Mike Tyson fight that they did, um, and they had a bunch of, I think Justin Bieber performed. I had a bunch of friends over, and I remember after that saying to some people. This literally is the perfect programming for every frat house in the in the in the country, right? Like you're it's a Saturday night, everybody could gather around the TV. Nobody's seriously engaged in the conversation, you know, in the event that's taking place, but they can enjoy the fights, they can enjoy the music, we can talk over it. Um, and I think that is the perfect way to deliver content to the next generation of sports fans. I, I need Mike Tyson right now to wipe that smug smile off Roger's face. It's the only, the only way I think we're going to get rid of it. But but it's interesting, uh, Corey, because you know, when you, you bring up cricket there, and, and it's it's fascinating because this idea that five-day test match cricket is dying because of these shorter-form games. And what's happened recently is very, very interesting. You know, the, the English cricket team, certainly, and this is very uh, England-centric, but the English cricket team have, for some reason, in the last few tests, matches kind of thrown caution to the wind and and gone out and played really attacking cricket and it's literally taken two tests where the English cricket team have kind of played well and played with verve and style and whatever and the media is filled with people talking about a renaissance in test cricket and you know could test cricket be coming back it's amazing to me how fickle everything is in both directions that's kind of my concern with this, and, and when we keep going backwards and forwards with it, is that you change a game to suit an audience that by definition is demanding less stuff they have to pay less attention to, which tells you that ultimately they're going to move on to something else. There's going to be, oh, oh look, there's a new shiny thing over here. We're going to go and watch um, you know, competitive tubing. I don't know. So I really don't know what to think about this when, when people are talking about changing games that have been around for centuries to suit an audience today that is by its very definition fickle. And I, I fear that changes will be made to games that go against the nature of what made them so special to people in the first place. So just playing devil's advocate, I would ask you, what's the alternative, 
right? Um, if you're not if you're not appealing to today's generation of fans, you can continue to do the same thing you've always done and protect the integrity of that. But if you lose this generation, how do you get the next one? No, I, I, I and again, that's that is a, a great argument. But again, I go back to what you said about love of sports tends to come from parents. You know, there's always a, that elder generation, and you know, I, I don't think I was any different when I was younger that. I didn't have an awful lot of patience. I think you learn patience as you grow older. And I think the game is something that as a kid, you appreciate the noise and the fireworks and the whatever. And as you get older, you appreciate the game. You know, the first time I went to a baseball game, I was so pissed that it wasn't 15, 14. And fast forward 20 years and I'm I'm watching the Red Sox-Yankees. I don't know if you remember the game when uh, David Cohn and... Um, I forget, was it, maybe it was Clemens for the Red Sox, but both pitchers had a no-hitter going into the ninth inning. You know, by then, if a game wasn't one nothing, I uh, didn't enjoy it as much. And so I, I, you know, I think these games have stood the test of time because you learn to appreciate the game once you're past that point in time where all you want is excitement and fireworks and, and you know, spangly people dancing and what have you. And, and I, I don't know, it seems to be right now a moment in time where people are losing sight of the game maybe making changes that in 20 years when this audience that would have come back to the game are now in their prime years where they can afford to take their kids to the game. And it's like, eh, you know, it's too noisy, it's too quick, I'd rather, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know where the balance in this comes, but it's something I wrestle with all the time. So I think you're speaking to why I'm not crazy about changes to the game, right? That's why I don't love the rule changes, you know, to add the the extra the runner on second base, right? Because you are actually changing the game. Right. Um, I, I'm more inclined to make changes that make it more attractive uh, for consumption purposes, right? So things like pitch clocks and, you know, perhaps shortening the season, things like that. Like I'm more inclined to make changes that are not changing the rules, the the the, the structure, the tenets of the sport for, for that exact reason. But you still need to make it attractive enough to get those kids excited about coming to the ballpark today. And I guess that gets back to the the you know what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, where okay, if the if the five year old and I have a five year old, I can tell you like she's starting to pay a little bit more attention to the game, but she loves the experience of going to the game, right? Like she likes the atmosphere and she likes the food and she likes the firework shows and all those things so you like and she likes the you know the um you know the fan zone outside the stadium and face paint and all those things all the other reasons to come and, and have a good time so I, I think there's ways to drive that excitement and interest without changing the game um because I'm, I'm with you like you might lose the existing fan base if you do that um, or turn off the existing fan base if you do that. Um, and, and, and certainly I think, you know, I don't think a five-year-old cares if there's a runner on second base or not. You know what I mean? Like they don't even understand what's going on. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, here, Corey, I'm going to bring in the sponsor question. Uh, we're sponsored by Sports Digita, uh, who your side of the pond dominate um, sports presentation software. Uh, so it's a great sponsor. You did mention the Pac-12 and NCAA and Grant loves the NCAA and college sport and everything like that. But what we are seeing today, I would suggest, is what I call the forces of polarization to find a product market fit 
with the ultimate media client, which is the broadcaster. The big teams and the big franchises and the big uh, leagues end up together and you get the disintermediation of the journeyman and journeywoman sport and sport event. My question to you is this, and Grant knows this is, none of this is surprising me anymore. Today it's Pac-12, yesterday it was Liv, before it was um, the brothers and, and, and the, the lacrosse. This is inevitable for me, so I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. I want to ask you to comment on this. I look over the hill and I don't understand why private equity just doesn't take out all of NCAA, just takes it all out and makes it what it is. And it's a sitting duck man because they've never paid the athletes. And as soon as they did that nil thing with the Supreme Court a year ago, game on. Market forces let loose. And within a year, we've seen the Pac-12 falling apart. So I'm thinking it's inevitable pretty soon that somebody with a lot of money is just going to take out the whole of college sport. What do you think, man? I don't think that the name, image, and likeness is the the driving factor here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I don't think name, image, and likeness actually even plays into the conversation. I think this is about media rights. College sports now. This is going on like fifteen years now. Every single time the Big Ten or the SEC has engaged in a media rights negotiation or has been a, about to uh, embark on a media rights negotiation. They have expanded the conference uh, in an attempt to drive more media rights revenue every single time. So mm-hmm. the Big Ten's move to pick off the L.A. schools in the midst of a media rights negotiation should not have come as a surprise to anybody. No. Um, this has been happening for 15 years. That's one part of it. You are undoubtedly moving, like you said, to a a world where there's haves and have-nots in college football. Uh, college football, it, part of the uh, the reason I don't agree with your statement is because this really isn't about the NCAA. This is really just about one sport, uh, which is college football. I think the more likely scenario is that college football splits from the rest of the NCAA. The NCAA continues to manage mostly college basketball, but all the other sports as well, um, and and continues to run the the NCAA tournament and continues to do whatever compliance monitoring they're doing, except it's largely focused on basketball, not football at that point. I think we are getting to a world where college football kind of governs itself. And perhaps the CFP, uh, the college football playoff becomes kind of that governing body. Who who leads it remains to be seen. I know there's been, you know, people have suggested SEC Commissioner Grant Sankey would be the kind of the logical person to do that. I think there's there's certainly could be a case for Oliver Luck as well. But the media rights stuff is being driven by the idea that we're going to have an expanded college football playoff. That's going to happen, right? So right now, four teams make the playoffs. Whether it becomes eight, 12, 16, we'll see. They Whatever works for media. We could, they, they couldn't figure that out, uh, which is why it's going to stay in place as is through, I think, 25, maybe 26. But we're going to an expanded playoff. And what this round of realignment is about is about the conferences ensuring that they have a guaranteed seat at the table. 
in a expanded playoff. And so at this point, the SEC and the Big Ten are almost certain to have guaranteed seats at the table. Now, the SEC doesn't want guaranteed seats because the SEC thinks, listen, our number one team, the, the conference winner, is always going to be in the playoff. Probably our second and third team. I don't know if you follow college football, but last yeah. year, both teams in the national championship game were from the SEC. So the SEC doesn't want it. But the Big Ten and all of the other conferences want to be sure that they're not going to get shut out in the expanded college football playoff. And the reason that they don't want to be sure that they aren't getting shut out is because the value of their media rights is largely tied to the ability to get to the postseason. If the, if you're not guaranteed a spot in the postseason, what is the network paying for? The games don't mean anything. So that's what this is largely about. And so you have the Big Ten who makes this move here. They go out and they get the LA schools and they basically have guaranteed themselves a spot in the expanded playoffs. And now you have the other three conferences, the other Power Five conferences. You have the Pac-12, the Big 12, and the ACC looking at each other and saying, looking at themselves and saying, well, we need to make moves to guarantee ourselves a spot at the table. Now, the ACC is in kind of a weird spot because their grant of rights locks the teams in through 2036. If the conference doesn't make a move to change that, they are going to be so far behind the eight ball come 2036 uh, that you might as well just fold the conference. The Pac-12, perhaps... A little delusionally, uh, I'm an Arizona alum, and I, that, that's my conference of choice, but still feels, even without the L.A. schools, that it is the third best conference and that it should be looking to bolt on uh, schools as opposed to their schools leaving, right? So p- th- there was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago, and I was, not to pat myself on the back, but to pat myself on the back, everybody was saying there was four or six Pac-12 schools meeting with the Big 12 today about, you know, leaving the Pac-12 to join the Big 12. And there there was literally no truth to that. There was no meeting. Certainly, there's been conversations between everybody, but nothing formal um, because the Pac-12 schools look at the Big 12 as a step down. I mean, the Pac-12 schools, you know, whatever you think about their product, they're still located in the biggest markets. It's Seattle, it's Phoenix, it's the Bay Area. The Big 12 is Lubbock, Texas. It's Manhattan, Kansas. I mean, it is cities that literally are irrelevant within the sports landscape. So the Pac-12 schools don't, the remaining Pac-10 schools certainly feel as if they are in a, in a position of power relative to the Big 12 conference. The problem with this is the Pac-12 could try to bring some Big 12 schools over. They don't value any of the schools except for Oklahoma There you State. go. There you go. Oklahoma State is the only team that they think could add that would actually bring any value. So then the question becomes, well, if the Big 12 isn't the right target, what about the ACC? And so the Pac-12 schools would like to kind of remain together if possible. To do that, they probably need to create some more value add. There's no real targets except for maybe Oklahoma State and the Big 12. And that's why you hear this talk of some sort of tie-up with the ACC. It makes sense as long as the ACC schools are committed to to working it out. But as you saw with the alliance uh, between the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the Big 12, 
that stuff is very fickle. Um, and there's obviously a lot of concerns that the second the Pac-12 and the, and the ACC tie up, the prominent schools within the ACC, your Clemson's, your North Carolina's, uh, are, your Florida State's, are going to just bolt to the SEC at the first opportunity. Now, that, of course, assumes that the SEC wants them. So there's just a lot of... Um, there's just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of concern. Corey, Corey, um, you, you probably think we're not following this, but we do because it's soccer in Europe. For 30 years, we have seen uh, a conglomeration around what is called the Big Five Leagues of England, Spain, Germany, France and Italy. All the other leagues, which you would call the equivalent of the ones that nobody cares about, are called Holland, Scotland, Belgium, Portugal, Turkey, Greece. Uh, they used to be important, but aren't anymore. And now we've gone even further. We are seeing the dominance of one of those big five leagues, the English Premiership. So this is my point, mate. The market does this shit. It brings the best into one vehicle. And, you know, we can talk for all day about who's going where, who's going. At the end of the day, I believe that a modern 2022 media sector is going to tell us what they want. They want this player, they want this franchise, they want this team, and they're going to say to sport, you put them in the same league, the same vehicle, or you're going to have a problem with my bid. That's how I... You're 100% right. As as it relates to college football, whether the Pac-12 and the ACC tie up or the Pac-12 picks off a team or two from the Big 12 totally irrelevant. At the end of the day, when this all shakes out, and it may be the catalyst for the shakeout is the the expansion of the CFP. Maybe the shakeout doesn't happen until the mid-2030s, the next round of media rights negotiations, but we are inevitably heading in college football to whether it's one division or it's, you know, the SEC and the Big 12 or in the Big 10, you know, in an AFC, NFC, Super Bowl situation, you're inevitably going to have the top teams bundled together and competing amongst themselves. That is 100% uh, the end Super game here. The, I, I, you know, I think the most interesting thing that people don't talk about, and, and perhaps it gets talked about more in, in Europe, but you have teams in the Big Ten and in the SEC today that might not be there when this all shakes out. If the idea is to pull the most valuable programs together, then why do you have Vanderbilt or Rutgers or Maryland or Northwestern? Those aren't prominent football schools. Um, yep. Those those schools- in our world, those are called Derby County, Ipswich, Aberdeen. It's it's the same film. <laughs> Now, now those schools, some of those schools, uh, Rutgers in Maryland in particular, were valuable to the Big Ten in the last round of of renegotiation because it was largely about media rights uh, and getting into bigger markets and uh, expanding the footprint. And while that's still important, where we're headed, and I think what your, your kind of overarching thesis is, it's going to be more about brand. In the future, hundred percent, the biggest brands, the biggest football names—that is where the most value is. Not necessarily the market has the most amount of people or the most TV sets. We've had this the same discussion around football here with this European Super League. Now, if you 
go the way that you think you're going to go. And I, and I absolutely see the case as to why it's going to go that way. College football particularly, you know, the fans in college football are rabid. This is not this is not a local team that they happen to support. This is a place they went to. It's their alma mater. It's in their DNA. They identify so strongly with these institutions and therefore these teams. But at the same time, they also identify so strongly with the conference rivalries that they've built up. <clears throat> you know, Alabama, Auburn, Clemson, those rivalries are everything to these guys. They, they, they would rather lose every game in the season and beat Alabama, right? So how do you adjust for that and say, oh, no, listen, they're not good enough, but you're going to love your rivalry with UCLA. I mean, this is going to be a new great rivalry and you, you just just wait. It's going to be amazing. Because in, in the UK, yeah, it's great that, that Liverpool might get to play Juventus, but they'd much rather play Everton. And Everton are not going to get in any Super League. So how, how do you kind of handicap that part of the, of the equation? It, it's, a, it's a really good point. Um, you know, I was, I was re- recently reading, you know, just on Twitter uh, about a guy who was making the argument that he's a, he's a West Virginia fan. Uh, West Virginia made the move from the Big East to the Big 12. And he said, yeah, you know, Texas and Oklahoma are, are big games for us, but they're big games for us because they're Texas and Oklahoma. They're, he said, you know, their biggest rival is Virginia Tech, who they haven't played since 2006. So you're going to lose a lot of that. I mean, I'm an Arizona basketball fan. The idea that we're not going to play UCLA twice a year is heartbreaking. With that said, I look at, you know, the, the, the changing landscape, and my biggest concern as an Arizona fan is not being left on the outside. Um, <laughs> and at this point, it's, you know, I'm bummed to lose UCLA, but I'm going to be a lot more bummed if it means Arizona is not in that top group when, when the inevitable shift happens. So at this point, whether it means, you know, tying up with the ACC, whether it means uh, the four corner schools, the two Arizona schools, Colorado and Utah, migrating to the Big 12, like we just need a seat at the table. Um, that's my that's my biggest concern at this point. And I think, you know, when inevitably there will be some regret, um, I think that's, you know, that's certainly inevitable. Um, we talked about it already, like hate the fact that, you know, Syracuse doesn't come to play Seton Hall in basketball every year anymore. But it's ultimately going to be about having a seat at the table, you do, not wanting to be relegated to that second tier. Um, and as long as we find a way into the top tier, I'll find a way to uh, to continue to enjoy it. The games, the thing is that the games aren't going to be any less interesting, right? Regardless of the conference, the product on the field is going to be as good. Um, people are still going to be excited about it. But what you lose is all that tradition and history and, and some of the things that make sports special, for sure. I, I, I see it both ways. Corey, let's have one last theme before we wrap up. Uh, and it's an important theme. We often talk a lot about Twitter, Grant and I, from various points of view, you know, our generation of guys, especially finance guys, but it's the same for any vertical. All the smart girls and boys are on Twitter now opining. It is the medium of some amazing content if you are able to curate your feed in the right way. It is an important medium. We also like to talk about it because um, of what Elon's done, but let's park that for just now. What I want to ask you, because you have been a focus on on looking at Twitter and Twitter influencers and everything like that. The thing that I always have a go at Grant and, and guys like him about is they don't understand meme culture. They don't understand that 
the game where somebody misses a penalty or somebody gets nutmegged or anything like this generates a volume of content that is by itself really, really important. And, you know, I think it is content goes well beyond the athletic gesture or the sporting victory or defeat. It's mostly about the entertainment value of it. You know, like the last couple of ones, in the last couple of days, we've had Zach Wilson. You know, Zach Wilson, um, who, yeah, I see you laughing. You know, I don't know. If I'm you know laughing. I'm a big Jets fan. So, the, the, you know, I like to joke. We've never been more convinced that Zach Wilson's the guy than this week. Okay. There you go. It's like that thing, you know, like he's banging a cougar, so he's got a lot of confidence. It's like that line from Moneyball, he's got an ugly girlfriend, no confidence. But the, the memes around that are just superb, right? So I think that is missed by the traditional sports industry. I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. Linking it also to what I thought when you said you don't know who's involved, the event in itself isn't these days, I believe, not as important as the anticipation of the event. So when you get Jake Paul absolutely destroying Conor McGregor with that two-minute video, I mean, like whether you like Jake Paul or not, that is an assassination job of the way modern content works, the way it's edited, the way it goes after them. This is what I believe this modern sports industry doesn't get. The action is in the Twitter memes. I love Jake Paul's approach. Love. Uh, it creates a, uh, like you said, uh, a conversation around an event um, and, and makes it relevant that, you know, I love the behind the scenes stuff that they do, you know, the the lead up to the fight. I, 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 that stuff should continue. But the beauty of Twitter, in my opinion, is the fact that the athlete can speak directly to the fan. That's what's kind of special and unique about Twitter that doesn't exist on any other platform. You can talk to anyone in the world or, you know, you get my point, you know, yeah. um, and it breaks down the barriers that exist. Um, now, with that said, and, and I don't just I don't know that they they miss it um, because you're starting to see leagues like Major League Baseball a couple of years ago. For a long time, Major League Baseball used to crack down on people that were sharing, you know, baseball highlights. Think about how crazy yeah. that is. Right. Like people that <laughs> wanted to promote their game, they were blocking from doing that. I think the leagues understand the importance of that. Um, I recently wrote a story about a company called John Boy, um, which has done a really good job of, of, of looking at, they started with baseball, but they've since gotten into some other sports, but looking at it and breaking down the game from a fan perspective and making it interesting. And so I wouldn't say that the leagues don't get it. I do think, you know, I think they're still trying to figure out how to do that. I also think there is a real disconnect between what happens on Twitter and what happens in the real world. If you follow my Twitter feed, just, I, do. You know, I don't know, probably follow 2,500 people, uh, you know, you would think that F1 is huge in the US. I have literally never one time encountered anyone who has talked about F1 in the wild, never once. There's about four or five guys I could name in the European sports industry that are dying in this particular moment in time because our whole thesis is you do a drive to survive and you break the American market in Formula One. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true at all. There's literally no evidence of that at all. In fact, <laughs> Liberty, 
has never once, never, Liberty, who would, who would be the first to tout it, has never once said that Drive to Survive is the catalyst for growth in the U.S. Never once. I'm going to get into a story next week probably about, you know, rights bubble and, you know, spending $75 million a year on F1. I, I've never one time encountered somebody who has watched an F1 event Never once in or brought it up to me in a conversation. So this is great. Um, this is great. It, it, similarly, the MBA, by the way, if it, my MBA feed, people, you would think that the MBA is the NFL, but it's not the case. So I don't believe that Twitter is an accurate ref- reflection of society by any means. I do think, though, it provides is a very valuable platform. I think, like you said, Roger, if you curate the right feed. I mean, you can learn more there than you can any school. Um, 100%. You know, I also think the ability to have that direct connection, I mean, the amount of, you know, team owners and executives that I've been able to just reach out directly to on social and have them respond in two minutes is is remarkable. I see athletes responding to fans. So the connection is phenomenal. I love Twitter and it's a great, like, second, second screen experience. I think of it as, you know, it's like, People refer to it as like a sports bar. You can watch the game and you can follow along and, and see what people are discussing. Like, I love Twitter. I, I don't necessarily believe that Twitter is an accurate reflection of what fandom for a given sport is. So how does that play into how people looking to, let's use the word, disrupt sport, where are they looking to get a sense of what they need to do to disrupt sport? Because, you know, if you, you either look at, the Twitter generation, you look at the the fans who are engaging on social media about the sport and you you look there for clues as to what they want, or you look at the fans themselves attending the games and you're going to see two very, very different paths to go down. So how do executives decide which way to go? It's a good question. I don't, I, you know, I'm not in the room. I don't really know. Um, but my my gut instinct would be to to look at the fans in the building because those are the fans that are actually speaking with their money. I think that's part of the the problem I have with Twitter. Right? Is that it's kind of people are willing to say stuff on Twitter that they don't necessarily believe. You know, Mike Tyson uh, right? He said something like, you know, was it say stuff on Twitter that you wouldn't say in you know to someone's face because. Yeah, get punched in the face. Um, so you know, uh, yes, monitoring social media is important to identify trends and, and such and, and yeah. stuff. But I would lean more towards the people that are in the venue. Um, I think that those are your real, those are your fans, or at least the fans that are willing to spend. Um, and and ultimately, those are the fans you gotta you gotta speak to. Corey, fantastic. Tell us as we wrap up now. Tell us where people can follow you because this is a, an absolutely must-follow account. Where can they get hold of you? Your newsletter, which is essential reading every day. Tell us a little bit about how you're involved with uh, Sportico or not, but let people hook up with you our side of the pond because I think it's fundamental. So on Twitter, you can find me at Howie Longshort. That is my Twitter handle. Uh, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form can be found at sportico.com. I work for Sportico. Uh, John Wall Street is the morning newsletter for Sportico, which um, is kind of like the premier business-to-business publication in the U.S. And, uh, yeah, you know, if you want to email me, you can email me at jws at johnwallstreet.com. I'm always happy to engage in conversation. 
but yeah, I, I appreciate you guys, the kind words and inviting me on to, to chat. I've been admiring the podcast for a long time. So excited to be a part of it. Our pleasure, Corey. Very yeah, thanks, Corey. Us. It was great. Really enjoyable. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care, man. Ah, uh, Rog, plenty to dig your teeth into. And uh, it's too bad that the listeners couldn't see your smug face through. I'm not smug. I've not all just... the time when you were making your points. I know. I was I know, giving I know, you support. But, but I, I know. I know. But I was ignoring that in favor of just the smugness at various points. <laughs> Well, and that, well, if you want me to be super smug, uh, there's a lot of stuff I don't agree with Corey there because he is, he's now a 40-year-old. That is 25 years off the pace. That is 25 <laughs> years off the pace. <laughs> oh, man. What does that make us? Jesus, that makes weird, me weird. Yeah, no, weird. Yeah, no, well, yeah, right, 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 everything's cyclical, right? If I'm far enough off the pace, I'll be at the front of the pack again. 100%. 100%, 100%. Yeah. But it was it was good. It was to, I thought I really liked that bit about linking what's happening in, in, um, in the NCAA to the same pressures happening in, in European football. I thought that was a perfect correlation. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's all really interesting. You know, that college football stuff was definitely in the weeds for some people. And there'll, be, there'll be kind of European followers of this that there'll be an awful lot of uh, TLAs there, right? Three-letter acronyms that are going to throw a lot of people. But you did... Brilliantly summarising it as as the football, you know, with all the different leagues versus the different conferences, and and it is. I mean, it's these are seismic changes in um, in American college sports, and you know, I do wonder that point I made about the rivalries. I think is is so important because you know what I said is absolutely true. There are fans who would happily have a losing season if they could beat Alabama or yeah, Notre Dame. I get that, great. So it is very um, true, and and it's going to be such a collision here to see how the people that want to change these sports and bring them into what they see as the new era sell that to the traditionalists, the fans who've grown up being taught to hate Clemson above everything else. Yeah, no, listen, um, I don't have the answer to that. And it's a yeah, there, there was a, there was a, there was a, you know, I was listening to Johnny Vaughan and, and he was telling the story about a guy who was arrested and tried for poisoning the trees. I think it was at Auburn. And um, he, when asked why he did it, the, he, he was an Alabama fan, and, and he, he said to the judge, I just got too much Bama in me. <laughs> that was his defence. <laughs> so it's that kind of thing you're dealing with, right? It's this genuine get, animosity for, for other schools. And you go, yeah, but you're not going to play them anymore. You're going to play a team on the West Coast that's got bigger TV rights. I don't know. We'll see. But it, it, no, it no, is a, it is a huge great watershed. point. It's the strongest argument you've got, I think, the, the old rivalry one. But, you know, so let's wrap it up. I thought that was a great show. Let's go back and start watching the Open. I don't know if you saw the tweet that I explained about my dream about the Open. Did you see that tweet? I did. I did. I did. I did. I, did. I, 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 I shit you not, Grant. I'm not making that up. I shit you not. So Rory anybody that didn't nine. see the I'll tweet, take that. yeah, yeah, I, we're on a Sunday. We're on the Sunday. It's the back nine, and like I have this dream when I'm watching Rory, and he's leading by nine shots, and that's fair enough. But the thing is, he's mic'd up, and he's impersonating Bryson and Kepka, and like he's doing a great impersonation. Like in a dream, things can happen, so his face changes, like Mission Impossible, a wee bit, and, and like he becomes them. And like, and and then after all this, he just looks into the camera and he says, "Are you not entertained?" <laughs> I shit you not, Grant. I'm not making that up. 
Well, nine shot, nine shot lead on the Sunday afternoon. If I, if I could give you the choice between that dream and the one you used to have about Cindy Crawford, Rog, which one would you take? <laughs> uh, well, Rog, good stuff. Really enjoyable. Um, our thanks to our, our guest, Corey Lefford, for joining us. And uh, as he said, do follow John Wall Street and Sportico. They are a, a fantastic source of information. Hopefully next time our errant groundsman will be back. He's probably standing on the 18th green now watching... watching or no, Giles, he'll be on the balcony of the RNA clubhouse. He won't be mixing it with the hoi oh, around the green. absolutely. He's in the Loch Lomond tent, either that or the HSBC tent. When going between both of them... He'll be, he'll be there somewhere with a straw boater on, no doubt, Rog. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so uh, thanks to you for listening. Um, if you don't follow us already, then please remedy that. You'll find us on Twitter at EntertainedR. That's the word, A-R-E. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you'll find myself at RPM Como as in the lake. As in the lake. Ladies and gentlemen, we thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.